Would you open your Bibles up this morning to the Gospel of Mark chapter 2? We will be reading from verse 13 to verse 17. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, I would encourage you to grab a Bible from the chair in front of you, and you can find this passage on page 837. Let's continue to worship our great God as we hear the word of God read and it preached. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick... I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. And oh, Father, we do indeed confess with David as he sung, your steadfast love is better than life. And so we make it our aim this morning as we open up the word that you have given us. As we open up the gospel of Mark, our aim is to praise you. And oh, Father, would you lead us in worship this morning by your very spirit. We pray that the word of God would not fall flat upon our hearts. We are so prone to dullness and boredom. And we pray, Father, open up our eyes that we might see glories in this text, that we might see the glories of Christ revealed and that we might rise up and we would praise your name and that we would lift up our hands and bless you. Father, I pray, I ask that you would minister to our needs now. Christ, he is our salvation. Would you lead us now to boast in his name, in his name alone. We pray this in Jesus' glorious and wonderful name. Amen. When Jesus began his public ministry that day in Galilee, And when he preached the gospel saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, he did not understand his gospel that he preached to be an additive or a supplement to this world's woes. Jesus' gospel does not provide a patch or a temporary fix to sin or our darkened hearts. 
Rather, when Jesus announced the kingdom of God is at hand, he, he declared the sure and certain news that this world in its present order, under the power of Satan, in sin, and condemned with death, would meet a final and climactic upheaval. And Jesus teaches throughout the Gospel of Mark, that which the world cherishes and loves, the kingdom of God despises and topples over. The world favors greed, pride, vainglory, selfishness, and it rewards these vices handsomely. But the kingdom of God extols gentleness, humility, peace, love, and above all, the cross. And the world advances its cause through coercion and violence, but the kingdom of God advances its cause through grace, sacrifice, and above all, the cross of Christ. There is a backwardsness and upside-downness to the gospel of grace. And the Apostle Paul brings out this force of this backwardsness, this upside-downness in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 25 through 29. Paul says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose, what is, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? Why did God do this? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. In this backwardsness, this upside-downness to the gospel that Paul gets and he articulates so clearly in 1 Corinthians is put on full display throughout the gospel of Mark. Jesus, in his advancement of the kingdom, doesn't accumulate powerful allies for himself. We don't find him making backroom deals with Herod or writing letters to, to Caesar or even conferring with the religious leaders of his day, asking them, what do you think about these things that I'm saying? Rather, in the Gospel of Mark, we see the sick and the sinners gather around Jesus, and he spends time ministering to their needs. Jesus doesn't begin his ministry in the populated city of Jerusalem where he could get the most press and notoriety. Rather, where does he begin his ministry? He starts ministry in Galilee, the backwoods of Israel. And he doesn't work to build his public platform. Rather, he retreats into the wilderness, and he does this again and again through the Gospel of Mark. And when he does something amazing, he tells folks to keep quiet about what he just did. And Jesus doesn't gather in general an army. Rather, he calls fishermen and tax collectors into his service. He, he gathers this motley crew of men around him. And chief in its backwardsness and upside-downness is the forgiveness of sins. In the Gospel of Mark, we don't find Jesus giving sinners what they deserve. We don't find Jesus casting aside the needy and the poor or the unclean. Rather, Jesus extends mercy in the Gospel of Mark, and he does this again and again and again. In the story of the paralytic, Jesus tells this poor man, Son, your sins are forgiven. And this backwardsness and upside-downness to the Gospel, to the kingdom, is so evident in our text this morning. Mark in verses 13 through 17 gives us greater insight into the gospel of grace and what it accomplishes among sinful men and women. Mark reveals through story, through narrative, what Paul writes so clearly of in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And what we will see this morning in the Gospel of Mark, in this story that Mark tells us, is the wisdom of God revealed in Jesus Christ. We will see the toppling, the shaming of the proud. The scribes will be cast aside and we will see the uplifting, the the gathering in of the sinners and the needy. That's what Mark desires that we would see this morning. Before we begin to look closely at our text this morning and work through it verse by verse, we need to look broadly at our text this morning. We have to notice the context of this passage and how it arrives to us. We have to notice a narrative pattern. The great benefit of expository preaching is that week after week, you're in the text. You have to keep your nose there, looking and looking and looking. And when you're doing this, you start noticing things that you would have never noticed before unless you had your nose stuck there for so long. In Mark chapter 2, verse 1, through Mark chapter 3, verse 6, forms a distinct narrative unit. And in this unit, between Mark chapter 2, verse 1, and Mark chapter 3, verse 6, there are six stories. And each one of these stories centers around the theme of conflict. In each story, there's a dispute between the Lord Jesus and the religious authorities. And we know this dispute begins when chapter 2 begins when Jesus forgives the sins of the paralytic. And Mark records the response of the scribes when they hear what Jesus says. Son, your sins are forgiven. They begin to question in their hearts, and this is what they're thinking. Why does he speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And this conflict between Jesus and the religious authorities grows through chapter 2, verse 1, through chapter 3, verse 6. Each story expands this theme. And by the time we get to chapter 3, verse 6, no longer are the religious authorities questioning in their minds, but they're condemning with their mouths. And they're readying their hands to take action against Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 6 says, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Not only do all these stories in this section of chapter two, verse one, to chapter three, verse six, share the same theme of conflict, but they share the exact same pattern. The same three elements appear in each story in the same order. So first, in each one of these stories, Jesus does something or he says something. Second, the religious leaders observe what Jesus does or says and then they begin to dispute what Jesus has done. And then third, Jesus responds and then he silences his adversaries. And we can see this clearly in the story of the paralytic. Jesus forgives his sins and then the religious leaders dispute in their minds. He's blaspheming. Only God can do this. Then Jesus responds and he silences them. He says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. We can see the same pattern, the same order in our own text this morning. Jesus calls Levi, he says, follow me. And then Jesus dines at his house with sinners and tax collectors. The scribes of the Pharisees notice what Jesus is doing and they take take objection to what he's doing and they, they say, why is he eating with sinners and tax collectors? This doesn't make sense. Then the third element is there as well. Jesus silences them. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. 
Now this narrative pattern that we see in chapter 2 verse 1 through chapter 3 verse 6 is not merely academic in nature. Rather these six stories that all share the same elements with the same order prepare us to make sense of what Mark's gospel is all about. These six stories foreshadow the plot, the great story that Mark is telling about Jesus and the kingdom. And when we come to the end of Mark's story, we will find these three elements again at play. When we come to the end of the story about Jesus, all that Jesus said, all that Jesus did throughout his whole ministry will be disputed by the religious authorities. Jesus will go to trial and the religious leaders will bring their charges. They will call him a blasphemer. They will call him one who's leading the people of God astray. And what will happen? Well, the religious leaders will get their way and Jesus will die on a, a bloody Roman cross. But because we have read these six stories in chapter two, verse one, through chapter three, verse six, we will know that there is one element yet missing. Jesus has done something, there is a dispute, but these stories teach us that Jesus' death is not the end of his dispute with the religious authorities. But just as Jesus silenced his adversaries every time in chapters two and three, at the end of the gospel of Mark, Jesus will forever silence his adversaries in his resurrection from the dead. And each one of these stories in chapters two and three tell us the gospel in shorthand. They're preparing our minds for the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so this morning, as we carefully examine our text this morning, working through it verse by verse, we're gonna keep this pattern in mind. Moving from action, Jesus' action, to dispute, and finally to Jesus silencing his adversaries. So let's begin looking at our text this morning by examining the actions of Jesus. Mark tells us about what Jesus does in verses 13 and 14. He records, He went out again beside the sea, and the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. Within this story that Mark tells about Jesus and his kingdom, he gives us two calling scenes. We've already preached through the one when Jesus called the four fishermen to himself. Remember Simon and Andrew, James and John. And in our text, we see the second calling scene. Jesus encounters Levi, the tax collector, and he calls Levi into his service. And there's many similarities between these two accounts. In both scenes, Jesus is by the sea. In both scenes, he is passing along when he sees a man or a group of men, and then he utters this distinct call to these men, follow me. And then there's this this thing that happens. Those who hear Jesus immediately leave whatever they're doing, their vocation, their job, their fishnets, their boats, family, or tax booths, and follow Jesus. We see that Jesus' words are authoritative. They're creating obedience in those who hear Jesus speak. And we have to take a step back here and think and pause. Now there are 12 apostles of Jesus. We know this. And Mark will record all of their names in chapter three. But he only tells us about the calling of the four fishermen and the one tax collector. He tells us about five of them and how they met Jesus, but not the other Seven. We have to ask why. 
Why does he bring our attention to these two particular scenes of the fishermen and the tax collectors and why not everybody else? Well, it seems that Mark holds these scenes out to us because they serve as object lessons. The calling of the four fishermen help us make sense of the nature of gospel proclamation. Jesus comes to these fishermen and what does he tell them? I'll make you become fishers of men. While the calling of Levi illustrates the, the backwardsness and the upside downness of the gospel. And so the calling of the four fishermen, when we, when we think about that calling, it seems dubious enough from the start. These men were not trained scholars. They weren't well-connected figures, nor did they have deep pockets to help Jesus in his mission. They weren't trained Bible teachers. But the choice of Levi as a disciple and apostle is more than dubious. It's repulsive. It can be hard for us to understand just how repulsive Levi was in his day. Who's Levi? Well, he's a, a tax collector. So to the Jews of, of that day, Levi was a traitor. He was colluding with the enemy who had invaded their land. He was using his time and energy and resources to take taxes for the enemy. He was also, ceremon- he was also ceremonially unclean. Because Levi mixed with Gentiles, he could not partake in temple worship. He could not partake in the instruction at the synagogue day by day. He was an extorter, taking money without mercy from the poor. He was greedy, often lining his own pockets with tax money taken from his own people, his own neighbors, getting rich by others. And for the Jews of all classes, as they looked upon Levi, as they looked at tax collectors, Levi was a symbol of all that was wrong in the world. And this man, Levi, was the man that Jesus came to and called him into his service. Jesus came to Levi, this tax collector, this traitor, this greedy man, this extorter, this unclean person, and said, follow me. We just have to let this settle in. What would this have meant as people would have watched Jesus' ministry with Levi? Levi would follow Jesus through his public ministry. Wherever Jesus went, there Levi would be close beside him. And Jesus is going to send out his disciples to preach the good news of the kingdom to to Israel. So in a certain sense, Levi is going to represent Jesus and all that Jesus stands for to the nation of Israel. And even more, this man, Levi, would share in close and intimate fellowship with Jesus. Levi would represent the upside downness, the backwardsness of the kingdom to all of Israel. Here's Jesus, and also here's this tax collector falling close behind, preaching the same gospel that Jesus preaches. Levi would be a spectacle of God's grace wherever he went. Mark continues to press on us in the text the backwardsness of the gospel. Verse 15. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And so we see here in verse 15 that Jesus did not only call a notorious sinner and tax collector into his service, but Jesus attracted sinners and tax collectors to himself, and even more, he fellowshiped with these sinners and tax collectors. Verse 15 notes that Jesus reclined at table. And that many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. It's an interesting phrase here that the scriptures use. And what is happening here is not a quick fast food meal that you would get at McDonald's. 
You go to McDonald's, you order your meal, you get it, you quick sit down. If you're eating with a friend, you, you scarf down your food in 20 minutes and then you're off. Rather, meals work differently in the ancient world. What was happening here was a time of intimacy and fellowship. Jesus and these men would have been laying on their sides, their left side, arranged around a table in the middle of them, sharing food and fellowship. But Mark invites us for an even closer examination of this meal. Because we have to understand this meal in light of who Jesus is. Well, who is Jesus? Well, Mark chapter 1 verse 1 says Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. We have to understand this meal in light of what Jesus preaches. What does Jesus preach? He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And to grasp the full significance of this meal, what's going on here in Mark chapter 2, we have to have our Old Testament ears on. Because meals are an important theme throughout the entire Old Testament. They appear in all stages of the story, from the book of Genesis to the prophets. Meals were wrapped up in the very life and the very schedules of Israel. So it's not surprising that when you turn back to the book of Genesis, the very first story that the Bible tells is a story about a meal. In the garden, Adam was promised a meal from the tree of life. And he has promised this meal from the tree of life with one condition, that he abstained from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But we know what happens in this story. Adam doesn't keep God's good word and Adam feasted according to his own appetite. And because of sin, because he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because he feasted of his own accord, he is barred from dining with God at the tree of life. He is withheld from this fellowship, this communion meal with God in the garden. And from this point on in the story, God holds out the hope in the gospel that he would again restore, that he would take for himself a people, that he would gather them, save them, and then share a meal with them, signifying full communion again with people. And as the story of the Old Testament progresses, we see hints of God's saving activity. We see hints of this coming meal We can look into the law of Moses. And in the law of Moses, God wrote hope into the annual calendar. Israel would participate in the feast of Passover, the feast of unleavened bread, of first fruits, the feast of trumpets and booze. And all of these meals, as Israel would eat them, would point them forward in faith, looking to a coming, a greater meal, when they would feast with God himself. Even more, God wrote this hope of a coming meal into the hymn book of Israel. Psalm 23, we we know this psalm. It's a common psalm. But perhaps these words haven't hit us with the full significance. David says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. What David is doing, he's prophesying a coming day when God's Messiah would eat a meal prepared by God in the presence of his defeated enemies. He would feast at God's table. And the burning hope of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, is centered upon a coming meal that will end all meals, when there will be full fellowship, full communion between God and sinful people. Isaiah 25 verse 6 says this, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. 
So the scriptures are a story about a meal. It's in the garden. Moses writes about it all the time. Meals, meals, meals. Read the book of Leviticus. The prophets point there is a coming meal that's going to end all meals. And then we come to Mark chapter 2, verse 15, and this verse strikes us afresh. Mark records, he says, And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. What's Mark telling us? What's his point in writing about this story about a meal with Jesus? Well, what Mark tells us in verse 15 is shocking. The shocking fact is not that Jesus is dining. This is what Psalm 23 prophesies of the Messiah, that he will eat in the presence of his enemies, a table set for him, made by God. This makes sense. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. This is what Jesus deserves. But the shocking fact is who Jesus shares a meal with. Who is invited to the meal of Psalm 23? Who tastes the rich food and drinks the well-aged wine of Isaiah chapter 25? Well, it's not the religious insiders who get to do this. It's not the morally cleaned up folks. It isn't the well-polished. Rather, who comes to this meal? Who partakes? Who feasts with Jesus at table? Well, it's the people of disrepute. It's a bunch of tax collectors and sinners who, who feast at this messianic meal with Jesus. And Mark is just parading before us the backwardsness and upside downness of the gospel. And Paul says the same thing. We can repeat Paul's words. Paul says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Well, Jesus' actions, of course, they bring great controversy. Look with me at verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And it's not clear here in verse 16 how much the scribes grasp of what's going on. Jesus' messianic claims, Jesus' messianic actions. But the point is clear. As they watch Jesus and his ministry, they do not appreciate what Jesus is doing with sinners. We can go to Luke chapter 15, verse 1, and Luke gives us a bit more commentary on what's going on. Luke says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. To the scribes, Jesus' preaching, what he said, and his actions, what he did, were incongruous. To the scribes, what Jesus says and what Jesus does just do not cohere. On the one hand, Jesus preaches about the kingdom of God. He preaches about the great day of Israel's salvation when God would return and he would smite Israel's enemies and, and knock them down. Jesus is saying this. He's preaching the kingdom. But on the other hand, what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus surrounds himself He fellowships with the very enemies of God's people. The people who should be excluded from the kingdom of God find their way into Jesus' kingdom, tax collectors and sinners. And to the scribes, Jesus' actions did not prove the dawn of the kingdom or that Jesus was the Christ. Rather, Jesus' actions called into, into question his very character, his very moral standing. And we have to remember who these scribes were. 
These were professionally trained interpreters, teachers of Scripture. And I'm sure as they watched Jesus, they were hearing his preaching and then they were seeing what he was doing. The, the proof texts of Scripture were just rolling through their minds. Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Or their minds were going to Psalm 26, verses 4 and 5. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with the hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers. I will not sit with the wicked. And to the scribes, their problem with Jesus was not just an issue of, of proper table manners and who should be invited to the party. To the scribes, their problem with Jesus was not that he just had a bleeding heart, that he had mercy on the downtrodden, but to the scribes, it was all the worse. Jesus was perverting the gospel of God. He was overturning the law and the righteousness and the justice of God. He was trampling over their hopes and their dreams of what this kingdom might mean for Israel. To the scribes, it was devastating. The Lord Jesus will not let these questions go answered. He will not let these objections stand. And Jesus responds to these men and then he silences them. Verse 17. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And Jesus makes clear here in verse 17 that the scribes have misunderstood the very mission of the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, and they have not understood the significance of the kingdom and that it is drawn near. The good news of the gospel has not penetrated their own hearts. They stand far away. And Jesus reasons powerfully here with the scribes. Just as a doctor spends his time with the sick, so too the Messiah, the Savior of Israel, must spend his time, his energy, with those who stand needy of salvation. The Messiah is going to spend time with the sinners. And just as it would be pointless to have a doctor who refused to see someone with a cough or an infection or a disease, it would be all the more pointless to have a Savior or a Messiah who is offended by sinners, who would not draw near to them, who would not commune with them. And Jesus plainly reveals his mission to us this morning. He says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so we can ask ourselves this morning, who is this Jesus we meet in Mark chapter 2? Well, we could use many words, many phrases to try to describe who Jesus is and what he is all about. But the good news for us this morning is Jesus describes with absolute clarity what he is all about. In the same context, in the same type of setting, Jesus speaks about his character and his mission in Luke chapter 15. And hear what Jesus says about his messianic mission. He says, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, Jesus says, I tell you. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So we can ask, who is Jesus? Well, he is a, a willing, 
He is a competent, he is a happy savior of sinners and he rejoices in giving away salvation. My friends, this this text is is so rich, it is so sweet, there's so much truth here. So now we've, we've worked through the text, we've exposited it, we've drawn out what it means and now we have to do the hard work of bringing it near to our souls. What does this do to us? How does this make us live differently? I want to leave you with four commands this morning. Four commands to apply this passage about Jesus and his mercy to your souls. First command is this, and it's the most important command. Look at Christ Jesus in this text. Do not skim over these words. Do not let these precious words pass you by, for there is life here, there is joy here, there is salvation in these words. And Mark is so careful here to reveal the the character of our Savior to us. And notice carefully the posture of Jesus revealed in this text. Notice carefully his attitude. He doesn't stand aloof from sinners. He doesn't make these tax collectors and sinners clean themselves up and prepare themselves to eat with him. But Jesus willingly and happily draws near to them in their mess and in their sins. He reclines at table with them. He feasts with them even more. As we think about this vivid scene, Jesus is laying on his left side with the food in the middle and and these sinners would have been arranged going around. Sinners would have been in the very bosom of the Lord Jesus, right near his chest. So I ask you this morning, are you discouraged today? Are you doubtful about the gospel and your share in it? Are you anxious about so many different things? Do you feel the stain of sin upon your soul when you look at yourself? That's all you you see. Do you know shame? Does it cover your head? Well, know this. The Jesus who didn't stand aloof from sinners, this Jesus who in Mark chapter two, who happily reclined with these tax collectors and drew them near his chest right close to him, reigns today with sovereign mercy and grace from heaven. This Jesus is yet alive today and he ministers from God's right hand and he has the same attitude towards sinners. His heart yet burns with the same love and compassion. His his eyes are yet keen, searching for the lost sheep. His shoulders are yet strong and able to carry the weak and the wounded. And his voice yet sings with joy as he gathers up the lost and the discarded. And his mercy is yet available today and his love is yet completely free. And so let us make fresh application to this Savior of Mark chapter 2. And know this, discouragement, we meet these every day. Doubts, they cloud our vision, anxiety, fear. These things are only dispelled, they're only removed from us when we see the Savior and when his good character begins to fill our minds, inhabit our minds. And our great need today is this, to know Jesus Christ better. To be more thoroughly acquainted with this Savior we see in Mark chapter 2 who dines with sinners and draws them near to his chest. To enjoy his full and free communion. And the old hymn counsels us so well this morning and we'll, we'll sing it in a few minutes. The hymn says, Jesus ready stands to save you full of pity, love, and power. 
He is able, he is able, he is able, he is willing, doubt no more. That is the message of the gospel. Look at Christ. Not only must we see Christ this morning in this text and meditate upon his character and fill our minds with his goodness, but we must hear Jesus and obey his call. Jesus called Levi into his service saying what? Follow me. The shepherd found his sheep. And Mark records Levi's response. And he rose and followed him. The sheep heard the call of the shepherd and responded immediately, leaving behind his tax booth, following Jesus and Jesus alone. And the good news of the gospel is that today Jesus sits at the right hand of God and he yet preaches his word. And the hope this morning is that Jesus Christ himself has mounted this pulpit and he is preaching forth his word saying, follow me. What a glorious thing as the word is preached around the world on this Lord's day. The happy shepherd has mounted his pulpit and he is calling his sheep from all the corners of the world. And Jesus' call, it is full of joy and it is full of delight this morning. We have to see it. And Jesus calls you this morning from Isaiah chapter 55. Hear the call of Jesus. He says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. And here's the clincher in Isaiah chapter 55. Hear the words of Jesus to your soul. He's inviting you to a great meal and the meal is himself. Jesus says, incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And the question this morning is, will you like Levi hear the voice of the good shepherd who makes his call saying, follow me? Will you hear his call and will you forsake your tax booth and follow closely after Jesus, taking up his words, hearing him so that your soul may live? Number three. Well, this text is is full. It's bursting with encouragement and joy and good news. I would not be faithful to this text. I would not be faithful to the gospel of Mark if I did not warn you. Look at the scribes. Look closely at the scribes. These men, they were trained in the scriptures. They knew the scriptures frontwards and backwards. They could quote the law of Moses off the top of their heads. They had it memorized. They were faithful to the church. They were in the church almost every day. But from the merciful and willing Savior, from the good shepherd who rejoices to bestow salvation on sinners, what do they receive? They only receive condemnation from this Savior. Jesus says to them, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. We have to ask here, what separated the scribes from Jesus? What excluded the scribes from Jesus' salvation? What pushed these men outside the kingdom of God? It was the very posture of their hearts. Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. 
These scribes, they reckoned that they had no need of the Savior. They reckoned they had no need of his pardoning mercy and grace. They reckoned that they were indeed righteous on their own, that they had good standing, that they didn't need a Savior who dwells with sinners. They judged themselves categorically different from the sinners and tax collectors, thinking that they were better. And I ask you this morning, what will keep you separated from Christ Jesus and his gospel? And the answer is, it is not your sins. Jesus willingly and gladly fellowshiped with the sinners and tax collectors. Jesus did not stand aloof from them in their state of wretchedness. Even more, Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for sinners. But what will keep you from Christ is the very posture of your heart. The very posture that that tainted the scribes can so often taint our own hearts. I have no need of a doctor. I am quite well on my own. I have no need of a savior. I stand in a better place than these tax collectors and sinners. I keep myself away from Jesus Christ because I don't need him. What Jesus Christ desires of you this morning is to feel your need of him, to be needy of him and come to him and find your salvation and all in all in him. Jesus says, incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And fourth, last command, rejoice in God. Rejoice in God. May this backwards and upside down gospel make you supremely happy in God. Jesus and his kingdom, praise be to God, doesn't work like this world. Jesus comes and he forgives people who shouldn't be forgiven. They don't deserve forgiveness, but he freely gives it. Jesus comes and he he dines with people who shouldn't be included. They should be excluded. This is not the way God's kingdom works. This is not the way the gospel works. And so we can rise up and we can rejoice. Because if we know ourselves truly, we are among the tax collectors and sinners. And by God's sheer grace, he has drawn us near to his son. And Paul writes to us. He encourages us. He says, God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And Paul will say a little bit later in 1 Corinthians, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It may mark chapter two in this upside down and backwards gospel. This meal that Jesus partakes with sinners leads you to rejoice and boast only in God. This is where this text should lead us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do boast in you now. We make it our boast because you are good and your steadfast love is forever and you have shed it abroad in the Lord Jesus Christ and we see it plainly and clearly. Jesus dined and called tax collectors and sinners and we humbly confess we are among those tax collectors and sinners. Oh, Father, we do not want to be like the scribes who say we have no need of a doctor, we are quite well. We confess the cancer of our souls. We confess the the darkness of our minds. And we cry out, we need this great physician, this healer of souls, this redeemer of men. We need the Lord Jesus. Oh, Father, we ask that you would lead us to him once again.
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.